As we continue in our series on church and church membership this morning, it's time we start to move into the arena of church discipline. And in the coming weeks, we'll deal with some of the most well-known New Testament passages on discipline in Matthew 18 and in 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus and then the Apostle Paul uh, walk through some practical situations in which church discipline is required. But as with all scripture, there are principles that we have to understand to put those principles into practice. Or said another way, there are always underlying truths which we are to believe And that truth is to be at the forefront of our minds as we put it into action. So our text this morning, Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11, deals with the truth that is at the root of all discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I'm certain that every one of us can think of a situation where we have seen a child that was left almost entirely to their own devices. It never works out well. Apparently, this is an age-old problem. The writer of Hebrews here uses an unruly child as a parallel illustration to God the Father's corrective discipline. When you look through verses 4 through 11, you'll find that word chastening or chastisement or corrected about eight times and of all them they are forms of the same word it is this greek word padia which means to raise a child the greek word padion is child and padia is to raise a child so this word includes all the things which are needed to raise a child it can be used in terms of discipline or training or instruction or correction or nurturing, or even punishment. The writer uses it in several of those senses throughout this text. When we use the word discipline, I think we automatically, in our minds, think of the 
most extreme forms of discipline within the church, but discipline starts long before that. We noted a few weeks ago that discipline is part of the Great Commission. The Lord calls us to make disciples and baptize them and then to disciple them, to teach them. So let's just go along with the Texas illustration for a minute. I want you to picture a child. I'm going to call him Little Billy, which seems like the safest thing to do since I have all daughters. Little Billy is unruly. He is strong-willed. He is hard-headed. He is out of control. Little Billy does not know right from wrong because he has never been taught right or wrong. Any lessons little Billy learns, he learns the hard way because nobody told him playing with matches can be dangerous. Nobody said to him, don't put the house key in the electrical outlet. If he learns anything, he learns it through bad experiences. Little Billy is also a bully. He lives by the motto, what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. And what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it if I can. He's physically violent and he's verbally abusive. Billy does not have respect for authority because he has never experienced loving authority. The first time little Billy ever heard the word no is when he went to school and he got told no repeatedly so much up until the day that his parents got told, no, little Billy can't come back to school. And so when William grows into adulthood, you wouldn't really expect him to be a helpful friend to his neighbors, a good employee for his boss. He's not even going to be a model inmate for his prison warden. Of all of these family and social and educational failings, they pale in comparison to the spiritual reality that Billy began his life on the wide road that's headed to the broad gate that opens up into destruction, and there has been no one who cared enough to warn him about it. And so, let's be realistic with a situation like that and ask the question, what is it that was missing in Billy's life? He was just as smart as every other kid. He's probably physically stronger and more gifted than most other kids. But he had some lousy parents. And though you would never excuse the behavior of William the adult, right? He is, he is responsible for himself. Anybody with the least bit of discernment would agree he's the product of a lack of discipline. Now, listen to how the writer of Hebrews expresses this parallel. Pick up the text (coughs) at the end of verse 7. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Parental discipline is is a part of life that is common to most people. And if you don't experience it, something very uncommon is going on. Any son, any child who has not experienced discipline, that's a result of that son, the writer says, not being a son at all. He's illegitimate in the sense of he's lacking a father. Now, of course, 
he would have a father in the physical sense of the word. The writer isn't saying every undisciplined child is the product of a miraculous virgin birth. That's, that's not what he's trying to say here. He's saying an undisciplined child does not have a father who claims him. He doesn't have a father who acts like a father because discipline is the natural and necessary expression of loving authority. Discipline includes teaching. Discipline includes correcting. Discipline includes some structured enforcement and expectations. If you want to see how loving authority acts, well, you look at parents who love their children enough to discipline them. Look at a church that loves its members enough to practice discipline. Best yet, look to our Heavenly Father who expresses His love through discipline sometimes through difficult and painful lessons that we experience. Look at verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. And so with that basic introduction, let's look through verses 4 through 11 and see how Discipline is the natural and necessary expression of loving authority. We will do that in four parts. We'll see God's discipline should be embraced in verses 4 through 6. God's discipline instills assurance in verses 7 and 8. God's discipline produces holiness in verses 9 and 10. And God's discipline seems counterintuitive in verse 11. God's discipline should be embraced. Starting at verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. I included verse 4 here because I think it's the beginning of this section of thought, but also it provides sort of a a natural transition from the from the greater context of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So let's get our minds around this context for a moment. If you recall, the book of Hebrews is a letter written to Jewish believers who are struggling under the temptation of going back to the old empty traditions of their former Jewish ways. It's Its theme in this book is Jesus is better, right? And having made the argument throughout Hebrews that Jesus is better than basically every one of those old empty traditions, the writer then transitions to encouraging the readers to be steadfast and to endure. Many of you could probably quote the first couple of verses of Hebrews 12. Look at verses 1 and 2 up in Hebrews 12 for a second. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of of the throne of God. The writer here pictures Christians as if we are in this 
great coliseum. There is a crowd surrounding us, watching us in this arena as we race. And he says, our sin is is an easy trap for us to fall into, but it's nothing more than a, a weight that prevents you from running well. So he says, put sin away and look to Jesus, follow him. He's who put you in this race. He is, he's there when you cross the finish line. In fact, he, he pictures Jesus as if he is the finish line we're striving toward. But because that race is not easy, because Christian life is filled with trials and difficulties, verse 3 says, to remember what Jesus endured lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Because compared to what Jesus has endured, verse 4 says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. Right? You are in a fight against sin, but you've not fought it to the extreme that the Lord Jesus has. You've not shed your blood. It's not been easy. Nobody said that it would be easy. In fact, you've been warned that Christian life will be hard. The writer says, you've been warned about this. You've just forgotten it. And so he quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Listen to how he does it in verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And here's the quote. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I think it's important to remember that the writer here is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Proverbs 3 because in later weeks, when we look at Matthew 18, we look at 1 Corinthians 5, we'll see examples of churches exercising loving discipline. But the principle in all discipline is timeless. Solomon in his wisdom, told his son, don't reject the, Lord, the Lord's corrective discipline. Don't let it discourage you when you experience these things. He's doing it because he loves you just like I discipline you because I love you. Right? You're going to get tired of me saying this probably, but here it is again. Discipline is the natural and necessary expression of loving authority. God, our Father, who is sovereign and in control of all things, uses all things for our ultimate benefit. The chastening of God is not going to come to you as a giant hand swooping out of the sky, lifting you up and spanking you on the bottom. The discipline of God is going to be seen through a hundred daily displays of His sovereign providence in your life, taking you on paths that you would not have chosen for yourself, right? Listen, did your parents ever tell you, look, this is what your day is going to look like, and I know this is not what you would choose to do, but this is what you're going to do, and it's going to be good for you. If you experience that, that is discipline. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 28, we know All things work together for the good of them that love God, of those who are the called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to explain in the next verse that his ultimate purpose is to conform us to the image 
of Jesus God's Son. So all things, whatever we endure in life, if we act like that's just, you know, that's just rotten luck, right? Or, or, or if we think that it's all because of, well, it's those horrible people over there and it's, and it's all them. Or if we meet the difficulties of life with kind of stoic indifference, we may well in the process be despising the corrective discipline of the Lord because whatever path you find yourself traveling, it's the path the Lord put you on for your good. Now verses 5 and 6 also give us a taste of what discipline from the Lord can look like and it does it by presenting two extremes of discipline. In verse 5, it refers to being rebuked by the Lord. Rebuke is something that happens with words. Rebuke comes when we are corrected and confronted by the word of God. As it, look, teaching someone what they should do is part of discipline. And correcting us when we're not doing what we should do is also part of discipline. The word of God, Paul says, is inspired. It's good for teaching and for correcting, and it does both of those. There will be times where you will be rebuked by the Lord. Here it means to be exposed or convicted. God's word will convict you of your sin and expose. It will bring that sin to light, what needs to be changed. That's not always fun, but it's always for your good. The writer says, do not despise God's correction. The other extreme is found in verse 6. The Lord chastens, he disciplines those he loves, and it says, scourges every son whom he receives. Scourging sounds even less fun, right? Listen, my own father's discipline was sometimes in words that I needed applied to my heart, and sometimes it was in discipline that was applied to my backside. The Heavenly Father's discipline can be in the word which rebukes us for our sin, and when we refuse to turn from that sin, we shouldn't be surprised to find there is more severe discipline to follow. But listen to this. Really, please listen, because I know... I know that there is, there are some of you who think in a way that is problematic. God's discipline is always loving. It can be difficult, even severe, but it's always an expression of his love. This is important because when you think, well, God is now punishing me for some sin that I've committed in the past. Listen, if that sin is in the past and you've repented and you've turned away from it, then what you're experiencing is not God's wrath on that sin. In fact, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you know that He has borne all of God's wrath towards your sin. All of it. There is not even a little bit of God's wrath for you to endure. Jesus paid it all. So God's discipline is never him pouring out his wrath and anger against your sin. God's discipline, even when it feels harsh, is corrective and loving. 
when you go through some severe trial or discipline in your life and Satan is going to start whispering in your ear, are you sure God loves you? Yes, he does. And if you did not experience God's discipline, then that would be a sure sign that God doesn't love you. Because, the writer says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So that brings us to our second point. God's discipline instills assurance. Look at verses 7 and 8. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father who a father does not chasten. But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. I want you to picture what the writer is saying here in Hebrews 12, because as much as that word chastening gets used over and over in our text, the word endure or endurance also plays a major role. Up in verse 1, he calls the readers to lay aside every weight of sin and run the race before us with endurance. In verse 2, he says to look toward Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, and by the way, that's us, we are the joy who was set before him, for us, he endured the cross. In verse 3, the Lord Jesus in his life set an example of enduring the hostility of sinners against himself. And so in verse 7, the writer is just continuing that theme. When you think of all that God the Son endured, then you have to know that God demands endurance from all of his children. And so if you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as a son. He is sovereign in the life of his people. He has every detail of your life planned to the minutest detail. Nothing happening to you has taken him by surprise. The Lord Jesus, God the Son, endured the hostility of sinners and the shame of sin for you, and now you are called to endure the correction of the Father as he makes you more like his perfect son. You know that you are a son when you experience the Father's discipline. Discipline is the assurance of your status as a genuine child of God. It has been said that one of the reasons that children love to push the boundaries of their parents is because it actually gives them comfort to know that there is a boundary. Oh, it it gets them in trouble in the process, but it also reassures them that the limits of their lives really are in the hands of loving parents. I would encourage you not to push the boundaries of the Heavenly Father, but when you experience the discipline of the Lord... You can be reassured he is treating you as his child. If you are not disciplined, the writer says in verse 8, you have no reason to assume that the Father loves you. Think about our not entirely fictional illustration of little Billy. 
right? His parents won't teach him. He has parents who won't correct him. He has parents who don't warn him of the consequences of his actions. He has parents who just let him do whatever it is his desperately wicked heart wants to do. From the outside looking in, the, the danger and the diagnosis is simple. Little Bailey's parents do not love him. If they loved him, they would have disciplined him. Well, our Heavenly Father loves us enough to discipline us. He teaches us what is right and wrong. He warns us of the consequence of sin. He corrects us when we've done wrong. Listen, he is not a father who is going to spare the rod and spoil the child. He loves us, so he disciplines us. And here's the thing, that's good for us. It assures us that the boundaries of our lives are firmly set by the loving hand of our Heavenly Father, and He will not lightly allow us to stray into danger. Let me just add here, just kind of as a side note. Understanding this also gives a great deal of clarity when it comes to some of the warnings of Scripture that people struggle with. Like those that come back in Hebrews 6 about the warning of falling away. Some people read that and say, well, see, the warning is there and that means that you can lose your salvation because God wouldn't warn you about it unless he was going to allow it to happen. By that same logic, I would not warn my children to stay away from the campfire unless I intended to allow them to stray right into the campfire. No, there's the warning, there's the teaching, and there's the rebuke of a father, and then there's the correction where the father steps in and says, that's far enough, I'm fixing this, and in the process of fixing this, I'm going to have to teach you a lesson using discipline. That is what a loving father does. This is what our heavenly father does. You stray towards sin, you won't hear his voice, you'll find yourself experiencing consequences, sometimes severe, aimed at teaching you a lesson. It is proof that you are his child. And it's for your benefit. Listen, verses 9 and 10 describes that God's discipline produces holiness. Look at verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. The parallel here between the family relationship and our relationship to the Heavenly Father continues. The The assumption is in verse 9, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We know that relationship. But we also know that relationship is imperfect. Parental discipline, though it is natural and necessary, it will never be flawless in this fallen world. Y'all look, my father disciplined me sometimes in ways that were not ultimately for my good. Maybe you experienced the same thing. Even even as he said the words, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I'm like, 
No, it's not. I don't believe that. And the sad truth is that sometimes he would lash out in anger and frustration in ways that were not loving. And, and the reality is, how could he not? He was not perfect. I was also slightly less than perfect. And in a fallen world with, with sinful people, parental discipline will always be flawed. As a father myself now, I've not always been loving in discipline. And sometimes that expresses itself in reacting out of anger. Other times it expresses itself in ignoring what needs to be addressed because ignoring it is the path of least resistance. Anger on one extreme or indifference on the other extreme All of those, both of those, are not expressions of what loving discipline should be. Now I want you to tuck this away in your mind for future weeks because I know you understand the the failure of parental discipline, of being angry on one extreme or being indifferent on the other extreme. But when we get to church discipline, I can assure you that anger on one extreme or indifference on the other extreme are equally failures. The writer of our text not only expects that we have experienced parental discipline, he also expects we understand that it's flawed. Right? Look at verse 10. They indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. There's two ways of thinking about that. It it could be that the writer is saying they just did whatever was suitable to them, or it could be saying, look, even if we give them as much credit as possible, they were doing the best that they could. But ultimately, it was flawed because they have limited knowledge. They're, they're limited by their sinful nature. Earthly fathers can discipline for the wrong reasons, with the wrong attitude, and in the wrong way. But... You see that word but in verse 10, right? But he, that is God, he disciplines us for our profit. It's always for our benefit. It's always for our good. God the Father is not indifferent towards us, so he's not going to ignore when we need discipline. But he's he's, in his holy perfection, He never does it for the wrong reasons or with the wrong attitude or in the wrong way. It is always for our good, the writer says, that we may be partakers of his holiness. You see this comparison, right? The discipline of your human father was good for you. Verse 9, it was, he even says it was worthy of respect, even though it was flawed. And so how much better then is this holy discipline of your heavenly father who is perfect and loving and does it for your good. The ultimate goal of that at the end of verse 10 is that we may be partakers of his holiness. So the very God who commands, you be holy for I am holy, works discipline in our lives so that we will be holy. We will be partakers. We will share, this means, in his holiness. Now look at verse 11. God's discipline seems 
counterintuitive. The process of discipline runs against our intuition as God's children. It is good, but it doesn't always feel good. Listen to verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There is a stark contrast between how discipline feels in the moment and what discipline really is. There is a divergence between the appearance of it and the reality of it. It doesn't seem to be joyful. It seems to be painful. But I think the writer's trying to tell us if we could, in the moment, see it for what it really is instead of how it feels, we would embrace the reality that it's good for us. Just quickly note three concepts in verse 11 as he, he sort of wraps up this section. Three things I want you to see in verse 11. First, discipline's pain is temporary, right? He, he says that it doesn't seem joyful for the present or in the moment. Instead, it seems painful. I don't even think he would deny that it, it is painful. But it's not ultimately painful. The pain is not the point. No child getting spanked from their dad is thinking how great that feels in the moment. No Christian enduring the chastening of the Lord is ignorant of the fact that it hurts, but it doesn't last forever. Discipline's pain is temporary. Second, discipline's profit is permanent. The contrast is that while it seems painful in the present, afterward or later, it produces, it yields this peaceable fruit of righteousness. The idea is that it yields Peaceful fruit or the fruit of peace that consists of righteousness. Just like it makes us share in God's holiness in verse 10, it produces in us godly righteousness in verse 11. And until you are right with God, you will not have the peace that comes with that. And third, discipline is part of Christian training. Listen to what he says. It produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That word trained is so fun. It's where we get our word gymnasium from in English. It's talking about athletic training. And so think about where he starts this chapter, right? You're in a stadium, you're in a race, you need to have endurance to get to the finish line and And discipline is part of the training process by which God makes you stronger and gives you endurance to make it to the finish line. These are the concepts that we need to understand about discipline before we start trying to put discipline into practice. Before we dive into those practical examples of exercising discipline as a church in the coming weeks, we need to be well acquainted with these principles of godly discipline. Discipline is not just doling out punishment. Discipline includes teaching, it includes rebuking, it includes correcting, and then sometimes it includes structured expectations and consequences. 
God's chastisement is always good and right and loving. It is for our profit so that we share in his holiness, so that we have the the fruit of peace that is righteousness. As a child of God, you experience discipline because you need discipline. All of us do. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he received. Discipline is not unloving. It is the very assurance of his love for us. Discipline is the natural and necessary expression of loving authority. If you have experienced God's love, you are going to experience godly discipline. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. 